Section twenty of Chimes from a Jester's Bells by Robert J. Burdett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Deborah Lynn. Chimes from a Jester's Bells by Robert J. Burdett. Section twenty. Stories and Sketches. Eighteen. Household Pets. Canem verum cano. Sometimes I cano them to my grief. Pardon the little touch of classical reminiscence with which this brochure opens. It is an old man's weakness and privilege to quote these broken scraps of bookish lore that cling to his memory, barnacles that fastened themselves to his bark, not to say bite, in the early days of his schoolboy voyages out into the wide, wide sea of knowledge. And the herein-before quotation is all that remains to me of Virgil's Enid and Geraint, or more properly speaking, Gerizant, but what wrecks it? The captain, usually, or else the pilot. In common with the majority of good men, I like dogs. I cannot say that I love man's faithful friend. I reserve my love for my human friends. I do not care to have even a good dog, as good as my neighbor is apt to own, sit at the table and dine with me. I do not enjoy having a long-haired dog with dew claws in bed with me. I prefer to sleep in fearful solitude, rather than share my couch with the best dog that ever dug rats from under a hen-house. I am not partial to dogs in the parlor. Being naturally a cold, undemonstrative man, I am apt to be repellent rather than effusively cordial when, on a sultry July day, a hairy dog with an undergrowth of furry pin-feathers weighing a hundred and eight pounds, coming in out of the rain with an ancient and a fish-like smell, climbs into my lap and endeavors to lave my resisting face with a moist tongue eleven and one-half inches long. I know that I have sorely grieved some of my friends by coldly rejecting the cordial advances of their dogs, but I cannot help this formal demeanour on my part toward dogs with whom I am but slightly acquainted. I am so constituted by transmitted heredity and the influence of environment that I cannot endure to have a high-bred dog which, or perhaps I had better say whom, I have just seen shaking and hauling a plebeian pig by the ear or carrying a long-abandoned bone to his lair, leave his quarry and extend his prehensile tongue to salute my shrinking cheek. I am aware that I am prudish and morbidly oversensitive on this subject. People who live with dogs have told me so, but I cannot help it. True, there are dogs which—or again, shall I say who—never touch anything that is offensive or unclean under the law. I know this because the dog's master has told me so himself. But I am an old man, and in the course of my long life I have met so many liars of various kinds that I am sometimes troubled by a haunting fear that even a good man, led away by his loving partiality, might at times be tempted to make misleading statements concerning the habits and sagacity of the dog of his heart. And yet I was not always thus, a savage foe of still more savage dogs. When I was a boy, every homeless dog that wandered into our neighborhood knew me for his friend, followed me home, shared my meals, destroyed our garden, and made things lively for the poultry. I still maintain that it is the inalienable right of every boy to own a dog, as many dogs, indeed, as his father's income and good nature will permit. It is the full-grown man whose dog makes me tired. The man always takes it for granted that you love his dog as you love him. Well, sometimes this is true, but in such a case it does not augur well for the man, not that I love Caesar more, but that I love his master less. There was a time in happy days gone by when I sat under my own vine and fig tree and smoked the pipe of peace, 
the only pipe I can smoke without contracting mal de mer, in harmony with all mankind, infondly watched my garden grow, for I am a lover of things that grow out of doors and stay where you put them. At times a friend sat at my side, and as we whiled away the hours in sweet converse, his playful dog would gamble with his fellows, my other friends' equally playful dogs, upon the lawn. I kept no dog myself. I couldn't afford it. It was all I could do to maintain a dormitory and campus for the neighbor's dogs, so I selfishly reaped my enjoyment of dog life from the merry antics of the dogs of my friends. A smooth-shaven lawn, in all the delicate health of its teething year, with a seventy-four-pound dog creating an earth-geyser in the middle of it as he burrows his excited way chinawards, presents a spectacle that leaves an impression upon the mind of the man who plays the lawn-mower in his own open-air concerts that lasts long, long after all love for the dog has died out of his heart. My friend looks at the dog with eyes that sparkle with admiration. "'He's the greatest dog to dig,' says he. "'Is he?' I ask, with an interested inflection and heavy accent on the is, as though I didn't know it, but hoped it might be true. "'Land, yes,' says Amicus. "'He'll have a hole in your lawn that you can bury a cow in before he gets through.' I say, "'Will he?' with waning enthusiasm, and think within myself that if he will just stop when he gets a hole deep enough to bury a dog in, it will answer my purpose quite as well, as I have no cow which I wish to bury. But before he gets it quite deep enough, something discourages him, and he wanders about the lawn prospecting in different places. Ha, ha, now look at them, remarks another friend upon another occasion, as four dogs of three friends, ceasing to dig in five quarters of the reservation, open a free-for-all wrestling match in the heart of a flower-bed. Look at them! That brindle dog of mine is as strong as a bull. Is he? I ask again, with the well-simulated expression of interested innocence. Yes, indeed. He'd pull down a lion. See him worry Thornton's big dog over that rose-bush? He's only a pup, too. That fellow's only ten months old. I think, by the way he tears and tramples and crushes things, that he must be a century old at least. But I only say, oh! The English language is not, as some philologists have declared, a meagre, inexpressive, poverty-stricken tongue. It is rich, rich beyond measure in its delicate shadings of meaning. One can hardly estimate how many volumes a man may speak when he says, but, oh. So I merely said, oh, with a circumflex accent on the, oh. All dogs are not diggers. Dogs, at least the dogs of my friends, have gifts differing according to the spirit of destruction that is given them. Some of these dogs, whom I have known were racers, and in the early summers of my lawn these did so run that they wore a deep, broad path around the house, hard as a floor of brick, whereon would grow no living thing, not even plantain, with tangent paths leading to the sally-ports by which they left the Presidio when I shot at them from my upper windows with a flobert rifle. Some were gnawers, and these gnawed the piazza posts, the hammock, the young trees, books, umbrellas, canes, doormats, garden seats, anything they could find out of doors, and tried to get into the house for more. Some, again, were cat-hunters, canis felinus, and these slew Robbie's kittens, three in succession, causing the owner of the kittens deep childish grief, which led the masters of the dogs to remark, after the carnage, that he was the boss dog for cats. You must keep your cats shut up when Bismarck, Terror, Avenger, comes around. I meekly said I would do so hereafter, which promise I could safely make, 
as my stock of cats, old and juvenile, was exhausted. This did not bring quiet, however, because Bismarck, Terror, Avenger, at Al's, deprived of their natural sources of amusement, made vigorous search for additional material, and prowled around the house and barn, digging, gnawing, and scratching. I think my friends felt a little hurt at this, and believed that I had meanly concealed or sent away the remnant of cats that was left in order to deprive their dogs of a little innocent pleasure. In vain I assured them that I was entirely out of cats. My friends looked incredulous and said, "'It is very strange, very strange. I never knew that dog of mine to be mistaken about cats. By the way he acts, there surely must be a cat somewhere about the place.' I felt so grieved by these unjust suspicions that I went so far as to buy a cat for my friend's dogs to play with, and I went to no little trouble to get a good one, one that would please them. I do not know much about cats, so I acted on the judgment of a young man named Connors, Mr. William Connors, who lives in a sailor's lodging house down near the wharf, to whom I had a letter of introduction from an acquaintance in the sporting line. Ratty Connors, the neighbors called Mr. William. He sold me a brindled cat with but one eye and a fragmentary tail, Mr. Connors told me the cat was a pet of his little girl who died, and it broke his heart to look at her. Otherwise, money could not buy her. She was gentle as a dove, he said. Her name was Celeste. I carried the gentle cat home in a bird cage. She got one paw through the wires and struck the conductor in the leg as he passed my seat, as I journeyed out of the city. He came back after he had taken up the tickets and told me I must take that mole trap into the baggage car. When I got home, a friend was sitting on my piazza watching his dog, a digger, at play in a pansy bed. I said, I have brought home a little playfellow for excavator. I then turned Celeste loose. She made for the half-buried digger as stoops the hawk upon the prey, hauled him out of his hole, swept her claws across his howling face like a besom of destruction, and made life a burden to him before they had been acquainted five minutes. When the dog was too tired to play any longer, Celeste shrieked in a weird, uncanny manner, and went away, and I never saw her again. The next day, however, a friend who owned a cat-dog told me that early in the preceding evening an Allegheny Mountain wildcat came into his yard, fell upon Avenger, tore the face off him like a mask, and otherwise so lacerated and cat-handled him that next morning the sight of a little kitten no bigger than a mole scared him so that he ran halfway up the side of a two-story barn before he knew where he was going. I didn't say anything about Celeste, because when I wondered that there should be wild cats infesting the lawns of suburban Philadelphia, the man grew very angry and offered to go before a justice of the peace and make affidavit to it. So for the sake of peace I said I believed him. If I believed one half of one tenth of the things I tell people I do, my creed, measuring thirty-nine articles to the foot, would reach from here to the moon. I have always been afraid that Mr. Connors deceived me about that cat. Some of the dogs of my friends were sleepers, Canis somnolentus. These would sneak into the house and crawl under the sofa, or climb upon the best beds in the house and slumber, and play tag with the pillow shams, and pursue the elusive flea over their persons. There appears to be a strong esprit de corps among fleas. I have ever noticed that fleas from different dogs never agreed with the human persons to whom they emigrated. By nature, I am not a revengeful man. The few murders I have committed in the course of a wild and wandering career, when I have had abundant opportunities to commit many more, were not the outgrowth of cold premeditation and a tigerish desire for blood. 
my massacres were in the strict line of duty as a war correspondent and they were not congenial to me many a time have i risen from my desk my soul sick of carnage and reeled away to wash my dripping pen at the nearest pump feeling that if the paper required any more slaughter on the next day it would have to hire a new man to do its butchery i have ever maintained that it is the business of the armies in the field to do the killing and that some combatant other than the war correspondent should expose himself to death and strew the gory field with ghastly heaps of slain but no under our artificial civilization all this the correspondent has to do himself take away the sword armies can be destroyed without it but while i am a peace-loving forgiving man near the close of the summer to which i have referred i bought a young cow she was a callow timid young thing somewhat shy and rather giddy as a cow is apt to be in that sweet caramel time of life her voice was changing and when she ran sideways a few steps twisted her tail in a very unladylike manner and tried to sing she gave utterance to the most extraordinary tones that ever startled an inexperienced cowherd but with all her foolish little affectations she was good-hearted and i made allowance for the inevitable silliness of her first season she had a mild jersey eye and a texas appetite one evening i called on one of my friends to enjoy the sunset from his piazza he is a very wealthy man who had the sun set on the western side of his house because he said that was so much the pleasanter side in the evening he said the morning sun shone on the east piazza which would make it very disagreeable if one had to view the sunset from that side ah me what a priceless boon is wealth now i am not able to command such luxuries consequently the sun sets all around my house wherever it pleases like a hen when i made this call i took joshua the cow with me i call her joshua because she is the son of none she was very reluctant to lead and had me on several sides of the road four or five times as we sauntered along in the level rays of the declining sun i forget what it was declining but it was very red in the face when we reached our friend's house i was glad to sit down and tie joshua to a cast-iron dog on the piazza my friend is very fond of sculpture and once told me that he had picked up that dog at an art sale for seven dollars he thinks it is certainly an old master, as he can find no one who can tell him who sculptured it. The family seemed surprised to see Joshua with me, but I said, Oh, love me, love my cow, you know. I couldn't get away without her. We are inseparables. That cow has more sense than most men. She watches for me when I am away, and when she sees me coming, there is something touching in her demonstrations of affectionate welcome. No matter how tired or sick she may be, she always runs to meet me. Wherever I go, she goes, doesn't she, girlie? I had never heard this said about a cow, but many times had it given to me about dogs, so I said my piece pretty well. When I finished, Joshua stood on her hands and trilled a stave from the drinking chorus in Meyer Beer, and all the people shrank back a little while the cast-iron dog turned pale. She's great on that, I said enthusiastically. I never yet saw a cow who could stand in the same pasture with her on that handspring trick. "'It's a little rough on a man's lawn, though,' my friend said, looking sadly at Joshua's hoof-prints in the velvet grass. "'Oh,' I said proudly, "'that's nothing. Just wait a few minutes until she begins to feel at home and bucks. She feels a little strange now, of course,' I added sympathetically. "'But when she gets used to all these strange faces and feels good, she'll jump about eight feet in the air, come down with her four hooves so close together you could cover them with a lady's handkerchief.' Then she'll just spread them and tear up more sod in one scratch than you can put back in a week. 
At that moment a nursemaid came along, wheeling a little cab with a sweet little baby therein. Joshua fired out her hind leg, knocked the top off the cab, upset the nurse, and raised Bedlam on the piazza. "'My child! My child!' shrieked the mother. But the baby wasn't hurt, and by and by things quieted down a little. I said that Donna didn't like babies, and they'd better keep their children in the house when she came with me. "'She's a whole league nine to kick,' I said. I call her prima donna because she's such a kicker. My friend didn't say anything, and I felt afraid that he was a little touched with envy. So I rose to go. Just then prima donna bucked high in the air, jerking the old master from his perch on the piazza. This frightened her, and she bolted, and away they went. Militia, I call her Militia because she's such a good runner, and the iron dog. Over the lawn, through the flower beds, down the gravel walks, around the house, the iron dog bouncing and jumping like a thing of life. I laughed till I cried. I never saw her in such spirits, I said. Just wait until she sees Bismarck. My friend did not reply. He was crying as much as I was, but I don't think he was laughing so heartily. At that instant Luna, I call her Luna because she comes on tide so often, saw Bismarck, the cat dog. With one jump she broke the leg off the iron dog, reached Bismarck in a single bound, and with a little coquettish play of her neck, had him away up in the leafy branches of a maple tree, wondering how he got there and how he was going to get down. Then Traveller, I call her Traveller because she is on the road half of the time, went down the turnpike on the run, with the leg of the iron dog swinging at the end of her leading strap like a slung shot, greatly to the annoyance of such people as she chanced to knock out with it. Stifling his desire to laugh at my dismay over the sudden disappearance of Comet, I named her Comet because she is so erratic in her movements. My friend, with that delicate courtesy which is one of the charms of high culture, said, changing the subject to relieve my painful confusion, This lawn looks as though some wooden-headed fool had pastured a drove of hogs like himself upon it. A hundred dollars won't put it where it was half an hour ago, and where it would be now if the fool-killer had called on the right man an hour ago. I could not bear to see him so distressed on my account. So I concealed, for the moment, my anxiety about Boy. Her name is Boy, because you never know where she is, or what she is doing when she is out of your sight, and said reassuringly, "'Oh, this isn't anything. You should see Thornton's garden. I took her over there with me last evening, and she stayed all night and played with the dog. Thornton has been in bed ever since.' But it didn't seem to cheer him up, and he continued abstracted and constrained in his manner, so I bade him adieu with my usual grave and quiet courtesy, and went home. A week or two after that, just as I had got Baron well introduced into society, I call her Baron because she is so poor, the man came to me one morning and said she didn't seem to be well. I went to the barn. Beatrice, for it was indeed she, was dead. She was swollen to the size of a sugar hog's head. Her neck was broken, an axe was sticking in her head, and there were five or six large perforations in her body. Several bullets were embedded in the side of her stall, and we found in her feed-box, mixed with her bran, pounded glass, rough on rats, and a package of strychnine. I sent for the cow-doctor and a detective. They examined the cow and the premises carefully, and I asked them if they didn't think Julius Caesar—I called her that because she was dead—had been tampered with, but they said no, she had died a natural death. The cow-physician, who knew her well, said he thought she died of old age. I said indignantly that she was only a year old, but he said that a year was a very long time for some cows to live. End of section 20